1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read from verses 17 through the end of the chapter. I want you to understand that these words in chapter 1 are words that Paul says to these people called the Corinthians as the all-important subject upon which everything else he's ever going to say to him hinges. So he's laying a foundation here as he gives these words. So I want us to think about that and think about what he says is the foundation. Verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should get glory in his presence. But of him... Are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. May the Lord add his own blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. We're taking this whole section as our text this morning. I'm not going to single out one verse particularly, but rather the message of these verses. 
and I'm going to think with you on what I'm calling we start and stop here. Well, may the Lord bless us as we are in his word together. Let's all seek the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless his word to us today for Jesus' sake. Father in heaven, now we would pray that you will bless the word of God. We would pray that you will allow it to be that which is used by the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts, to give us an insight into the mind and will and way of God that we might understand again what we are, what thou hast done, and who we will be everlastingly with thyself because of the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that thou hast helped by allowing the Spirit of God to take this word today and use it. Though we would have to say that what we do here is rightly described not only by men who see, but by the Holy Ghost himself as that which is not powerful. We pray that thou wouldst make it powerful by blessing the message and helping the messenger. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to you a moment ago, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul is laying a foundation in this chapter for everything else that he has to discuss with these people in later chapters. And it's sort of interesting that the very thing that he comes to as his subject is the true nature of gospel preaching. How is it that the gospel, the message of the Lord Jesus, that which we preach to men that they need to be saved through the work of Christ alone, how that is so foundational for every other possible problem that could arise? And I say he is very careful to establish, he makes it very plain that God's power and blessing on the presenting of the gospel does not come because there is something amazing about the preacher who delivers the message. In fact, Paul, as he's going through this chapter, if we'd read the earlier verses as well, denounces that. He refers to the divisions that were occurring amongst the Corinthians because they were aligning themselves behind some preacher or other, some favorite preacher of theirs. Some were saying, I'm a Paul. I'm, I'm a follower of Paul. They say, I'm a follower of Apollos. Some say, I'm, I'm better than you all. I'm a follower of Christ. Well, the fact is that they were believing somehow that following a particular man would allow them to be more discerning than their brethren around them and perhaps even more spiritual. Paul is saying that the fact is it does just exactly the opposite. It causes there to be men glorying in something other than the Lord. Paul then comes around to this as well. In trying to support what he is saying on this, he mentions the fact that he himself is very weak. And I, he said amongst them, I have never been a brilliant orator among you. He says he was 
very weak in his abilities, but he still saw the power of God outworked. And he declares emphatically in verse 18 that it is the message of the gospel that sees the power of God on it. It is what God says about the Lord Jesus and are relaying that by the help of the Holy Spirit that sees the power of God. It is the preaching of Christ's work on Calvary attended by the power of the Holy Spirit that causes men to pass from death to life. Well, then after Paul sets this truth forward in no uncertain terms, he begins to speak about the natural man. Now, what do we mean by the natural man? Well, we mean a man who is operating only in the senses that he has as somebody who has never trusted in the Lord Jesus. He is still fallen. He is still unsaved. He is still in his sins. Or as Paul says to the Ephesians, he is still dead in his trespasses and sins. And Paul mentions a couple of groups. He talks about those who were unaffected by the Spirit's wooing and see the whole of the gospel and the preaching of it not as something that is noble even or sensible or wise, but just exactly the opposite. They have received it, and men will receive it. And keep in mind what Paul says here about these two groups that he mentions, and I'll go over that in just a minute. What he says is the case of all men. It's an effect that is exactly the opposite of what we might think. Among fallen men, there is a discounting and a rejection of Christ's gospel. It is seen as nothing, either of power or making sense. The gospel doesn't make sense. Faith in God does not make sense. Anything that has to do with the gospel does not make sense. And it, it is utterly against what they have concluded to be true of life and spirituality, so-called Well, here's a great lesson. And this is what I think Paul is establishing. And this is what we're going to center our thinking on today. The natural man, the man without Christ, does not receive the things of God. But he with great vigor denounces them as nonsensical and Here's a long word, antithetical. It means it goes against everything that everybody would ever think about life, about the meaning of life. The natural man belittles the gospel. Well, he may not do so in outward flagrant ways, but he sees the gospel as having no possible impact to life or religion in general. Oh, let me say that again. He believes that the gospel that faith has no real impact on life. And everything that goes with the belief of the gospel, he deems powerless. Let me list some things that the natural man thinks has no power. He believes that prayer has no power. Why? 
because you're just exercising something that's not real. Preaching has no power. Fasting, according to the commandment of God, has no power. Keeping the law of God is only beneficial in so much that it has civil benefits, but it doesn't have any possible effect beyond that. Paul sets forth examples that the Corinthians would commonly see among them as how this works. He offers comments about the Jews and the Greeks, both of which the Corinthians would have much experience. And so he uses that. But I stress, however, the truth that he presents about these groups is far wider than just these two parties. It is true of all men everywhere. These groups are representative of fallen man overall. So I want us to think about this subject this morning because it is a foundational truth. How does the natural man think about the gospel and why is that important to me? How does that affect me? Well, my theme for this morning is simply this. As my title suggested, we stop here, or we, we start here and stop here. The point is that Paul makes the resting place for the saint is the merits of Jesus Christ and those alone. So, I'm going to think about three things this morning. I'm going to present three S's, and you know I get to the next point when I get to the next S. I want us to think first about Paul's statement, the statement that he makes about these groups and how they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you read verses 22 to 24... You have it set there. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he sets the Jews and Greeks up, and then he uses three times an application to each party. One seeks a sign, and they find a stumbling block but ultimately the gospel proves to be the power that convinces. Others seek wisdom, they consider it foolishness, but then they find it to be the wisdom of God. So I want us to think first then about Paul's statement. Paul makes the plain statement that natural man will not give any credence to the gospel because the gospel either offends him or he cannot make sense of it. You know, the, the words of chapter 2, verse 14, really stick out when you take what I'm saying and apply that verse to it. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. You know, this might be a good one to have you all memorize. Maybe memorize on the way home. I bet you could do it. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, excuse me, 2, 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So there you have the two things. They will not receive, and they cannot know. Stumbling block? Foolishness. The natural man receives not the things of God, because they either are finding it an offense, or they cannot make sense of it. Again, this point is made plain by considering the two groups whose confidence in life was based on one of two foundations. 
Now there are many represented here by the sighting of the Jews that trust their whole standing before God on self-righteousness. Oh, I'm so good. I'm right. Therefore, I must be good before God. The belief is that by doing is a means of satisfying the demands of God. If I do all things, if I do good things, if I do moral things, if I do ceremonial things, if I do things, then I must be right in the sight of God. In contrast to those that we just mentioned, there are those that have the foundation of this life and the next in what they can understand for themselves. They lean on what they think or consider themselves to understand. Their intellect and their ability to speculate is their guide. So you have some that lean on self-righteousness. You have others that lean on how well they think. And in both cases, the end result is the same. Both self-righteousness and self-sufficiently leads to unbridled pride and arrogance, which the scriptures plainly teach is an abomination to God. Now Paul speaks of the gospel as offending both of these minds and hearts. He offers this verse. He says, the Jews seek a sign. This means, now think about what you know about the Lord Jesus dealing with Pharisees, uh, how he comments on them, how their attitudes are toward the Lord Jesus. You think about this with me. This means that the Jews will not and absolutely cannot be called to faith. Think about this. The Jewish mindset is opposed to the idea of faith. Faith is not only foreign, but it is detestable. A sign is an outward proof of truth that cannot be denied. But, in the minds of these who are self-righteous, all signs must line up with their understanding and enhance their sense of self. Otherwise, they will not believe. How many times did the Lord Jesus come amongst the Jews and do a great work? How many times did he offer a sign of healing someone or even raising the dead? Or calming a storm or providing bread for a host. How many times did the Lord Jesus offer a sign? Well, there were countless signs by his healing and his miracles. They would not believe. Again, let me say this. Self-righteous men never believe anything that does not promote self. They may say that they believe many things that are doctrinal or they might believe some things that are even theoretical but if it doesn't promote self and their sense of self and their self-righteousness they won't believe it and the, their conclusion is that they are somehow better as they judge themselves than others little consideration of how they appear before God is made so you have the Jews who are self-righteous. Again, 
the natural man, the self-righteous man, will not receive the gospel because the gospel is of faith. He doesn't want anything that has to do with faith because it doesn't lift up self. Then on the other hand, you have men like the Greeks who are all about their minds, their intellects. The Greeks, Paul says, seek wisdom. This means that something that stands the test of intellectual debate is what they seek for. The man who can debate philosophy most eloquently wins the argument. Faith is deplored as nonsense for it calls for a surrender of pride and intellect to the truth of God. You have to surrender your intellect and your prowess of thinking to the Lord. Now Paul, again, as I mentioned, contrasts these men's uh, men three times. In verse 23 he says, To the Jews the gospel of the Lord Jesus is a stumbling block. In other words... What's a, what's a stumbling block? Is it something you just sort of stub your toe on and but then you just keep on walking? No, I think the thought is that when you hit a stumbling block, you fall flat on your face. You fall right on your nose. And faith and repentance completely undoes self-righteousness. It makes them fall on their face, right on their nose. They don't want that. So they're not going to uh, admit to it or uh, receive it. They cannot accept it. The, Jew, or the Gentiles, the Greeks, believe it's foolishness, meaning it's detestable because it brings wisdom and the pride of man to the dust. Paul makes a point that until men are subdued by the Holy Spirit and come to Christ, this is their condition, whether Jew or Gentile. Men despise faith. They will not have faith. The gospel to the natural man does not make sense. It is not to be leaned on. And I would say this. You think about this too. Even the worst of sinners, people who would have to acknowledge, you know, I, I have really blown it in life. I have been a terrible sinner. They still have the same argument. Because if you talk to them about the Lord Jesus and they don't believe it, either one of two things is true. Either they see themselves as okay. You know, well, what you say is right, but I'm okay. <laughs> you're self-righteous is what you are. Even though you're a profound sinner, you're self-righteous. Or they think, yeah, I, I, I know more about my state <laughs> than the gospel. I, I, I know, I mean, I can, hey, you know, I can think of things that makes the gospel not true. You know, I can come up with all kinds of art. No, it's just arrogance about your own intellect. Even the worst of sinners are that way. Faith. Faith. Faith is what God is requiring. And it is to the natural man, to those that we deal with who are outside of Christ, it is either an offense or it does not make sense. Now, I have spent the last few minutes going over a point of doctrinal truth. Now, I want us to come to where I really want us to get to today, and that is to consider why would Paul make this truth so important that he starts out the book of Corinthians to a group of people who were really in trouble. You know, if you could say anything about the Corinthians, you would they were a mess. In just about every way that you can imagine, they were a mess.
So why this truth, why would this be important for them to consider? Why would Paul make this a point? So here's really where I want us to get to this morning. Another S. We had the statement, this is what the truth is. Now I want us to look at the sermon. Why does he preach this to the Corinthians? You say, brother, you know, there was a lot of what you just said I didn't catch. Okay, hang in there. I'm just trying to stress again this point. Faith is God's requirement. It is nonsensical or it is an offense to the natural man. Why do I need to know that? Why does that need to be where I start and, my, and I stop? Here's the reason. Paul speaks this true because he would have the Corinthians to be aware of the ways of the natural man. Why? First, here's the reason. There was need to know how men untouched by the power of God will react. Do you ever wonder why, if you ever wanted to tell somebody about the Lord Jesus, that they seem completely disinterested? You say, well, that's just, that's just terrible. It's just, I, I wouldn't have expected that. I would have thought that there would have been something that would have been marvelous to them. It, it is to me. Why would it not? No. Don't be surprised when those you tell the gospel to do not receive it because the natural man is either opposed to it or it doesn't make any sense to him. So we are not to be surprised or dismayed at the rejection of the gospel. It is always the reaction of those for whom the Holy Spirit has yet to open the heart. However, also, and this I think is even more of a point, we are at the same time to realize that when the Holy Spirit does work, there will be nothing that can stop the purpose of God. You Corinthians understand, this is how the natural man is going to react to the gospel. But also understand this, that when the Holy Spirit speaks to a man's heart, he will not turn from Christ. He will not turn and I think in some cases, in either case, there is no room for pride on our part or of any sort. In fact, Paul, this is what Paul comes to at the end of our reading. We cannot feel proud when men uh, take what we say, believe on the Lord Jesus. We cannot be proud of the work of the power of God, for we can only claim weakness. Nor can we feel proud of ourselves when we see men refusing. We're failures. There's no room for pride. So Paul comes around and says at the end of it all, that in according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. There's no reason why we should have any pride in what we are, who we are, what we say, how we look, so forth. That's lesson number one. But here's the bigger point. And really, this is the point that is the thought that captured my attention when I read this portion. So in other words, I'm getting to the real heart of what I wanted to tell you this morning. Number two, there was a need of a warning. 
that we also do not yield to the flesh, or we conclude, as do unsaved men. Here is what Paul, I think, is really striving at. He tells them all about how the natural man reacts. He tells them that they need to beware against their own pride. Let them glory in the Lord. But here, I think, is the real center, driving, important thing to realize. We, even though we believe on the Lord Jesus, are prone to lean on such fleshly thinking in our moments of weakness and confusion. You and I, even though we believe on the Lord Jesus, can think the same way that the natural man does. You say, what? Yes, let me say this. It is not uncommon for a believer to consider the gospel a precious truth that saves him, but the effects of the gospel just don't work in everyday life. That's very common. You will even hear Christians say, what use is it to pray? God doesn't answer my prayers. They never get answered. I think I should just strive to figure things out for myself. I should, I should, well, what I need is action. I need to get up and do something for myself. I, I prayed, but my conclusion is, like the natural man, that there is no benefit. It is a nonsensical thing to pray because it doesn't do anything. There are Christians that even act that same way. Paul's warning against that. Or, what use is it to set my mind on Christ, what Christ has done, when I can look at myself and I can see the full tally of my sinfulness standing before me like a giant with a club? The Lord says He's washed my sins away, that I am justified, but I look at myself and what do I see? What you are doing when you conclude that you are under the weight of your sin and that God is just wanting to take that giant's club and bat you around the head a few times because you just can't get with it. You are thinking as the natural man. You are thinking outside of the gospel. You are dealing with your intellect, your wisdom, your Greekness, if you will. Because it doesn't make sense. I'm not, I'm not perceiving it. I'm not, I'm not getting it. Well, you know, it's because you don't have faith in the work of the Lord Jesus. Your mind does not come to the place where you say, I start my thinking with what Christ has done, and I end my thinking with what Christ has done. Or, how about this? Why would God have anything to do with me when I can't understand the things that He says for me to do? You know, I... I hate to say this about myself, but... I'm not the brightest bulb in the marquee. I'm not the smartest guy that's ever walked in two shoes. And I don't understand a lot of stuff. 
Join the club. Let me tell you what, if anybody makes it feel like, hey, yeah, my bulb is brighter than your bulb, then you'd have to say, yeah, realistically, Charlie, you're a dimwit. Really. Because it's all the same. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have turned away. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's a phony baloney thing. It doesn't matter whether you understand all things perfectly or not. And by the way, you won't understand all things perfectly until we actually are in glory. And the Lord has eternity to let us know about every particular part of his work. My point to you, and I think this is Paul's great point to the Corinthians that I'm trying to come back to, is this. This mindset is a place of grave danger and folly. Christians will fall into all sorts of defeats when their minds discount the work of Christ. When you find yourself not relying on what Christ has done, when you are not giving yourself wholly to faith in the person of your God, when you are setting up the need to have something done other than just simply waiting on God and trusting Him, you're setting yourself up for some real dangers and follies. And the defeats will come one right after the other. And so I say, the great point of this message today is that Paul is warning the Corinthians who had such enormous troubles that they were going to have to work through. Things that they had to repent for. Things that they had to straighten out in their minds and hearts. Things that they had to deal with in their presence. They had enormous trouble. But he was warning them that they must understand and set their minds on what I'm calling first things. First truths. And first foundations. If they are to see themselves safely through what was before them. Oh, understand this. We cannot dismiss what God says and have the peace of God. You cannot do it. When the Lord says that we are to look to Him, that we are to trust in Him, we are to cast everything upon Him, when we discount that and say, nah, that sounds pretty pie in the sky to me. It never has worked for me before. I'm going to go my own way and I'm going to trust in my own thinking and undertake for myself. Well, you'll never have the peace of God. We must set our minds on the Lord. We must have faith in the Lord. We must believe that God is God. And he will do us good according to all that he has promised us. But more so what he has promised to Christ. So there I say is the sermon. Don't you go thinking like the natural man. Don't let your mind trip over those stumbling blocks or slide on those things that seem not to make any sense. Start with what you know about the person of your God and His work. 
and stop there. For thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The prophet Isaiah says. My last point, the summons. The summons, there is a call to these people in these words. And that call is to exercise faith in the plain truth of the gospel. Or I can put it another way. The way to full life is the way of faith. The way of faith. Faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. Read through Hebrews chapter 11. And read how God rewards faith. Uses faith. Notes faith. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ and his work. Again, we must trust the person of our Savior. We must trust the work of our Savior. We must trust the word of our Savior. And may I say to you, frankly, what I just said in those three things, that is the encapsulization of the Christian life. That's what it means to be a Christian. I trust in the person of Jesus Christ. I trust in the work of Jesus Christ. I trust in the word of Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. My thinking goes no place outside of the framework of Christ. Again, we are to be those, and here's the summons that Paul says, let's put away dead, selfish pride that arises when we think we have solved our own matters. You will never solve your own matters. The Jews try and they fall flat on their noses. The Greeks try and they find themselves sitting there completely bewildered because it doesn't make sense. We are to be those who set ourselves on the gospel of Christ that we believe what Christ has said and we go no further. But we need to be warned. We are so prone, so prone to think like the natural man. I close with this verse, Psalm 62 and verse 8. It's a capsulization perhaps of what we've been trying to say. Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times. All times? How many, how many kinds of areas of life would that entail, do you think? Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Okay, what does Selah mean? It means think on it. Dwell on it. Meditate on it. Act on it. Well, may the Lord allow us to be those that hear. May we not be like those that think the gospel and what the Lord Jesus says in his word. 
is only good some of the time. But may we realize indeed that it's good at all times. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now we pray that you'll bless the word of God. We pray that you will allow it to be that which is used by the Spirit of God to teach us what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be those who act as Christians, those who are acting as the people of God, those who go no further in their thinking or their actions than what the mind of God has said for us to do or to think. Lord, we pray now that you'll bless us, use it. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.